This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We are into the home stretch with uh, Eric Mitchell. There's so much here to uh, delve into, and we are not even scratching the surface. We're going to have to have you back, Eric, for a full two hours. But you were talking about uh, you. your brain was emitting um, a thousand hertz. Uh, uh, one one thousand five hundred and forty, but that was uh, 2014, the last time we recorded in Nashville. As a matter of fact, the guys in Nashville, they weren't... Uh, too privy on on doing the whole project but the wife was an experiencer and she pushed for it she said you guys have to do this and you know they were really skeptical i don't blame them i I went into the uh the soundproof room they were looking at a 70 inch tv and uh i was determined to show them that uh they shouldn't be skeptical so i I blasted uh, i think it was um 741 hertz um, pretty loudly and they picked it up just fine. <clears throat> they were kind of upset at first. They were saying, no, check the diagnostics. That's not him. Uh, there's something wrong with the equipment. So they ran diagnostics and they found out it was me. And, uh, I mean, they just got really excited. Uh, so that kind of changed their mind a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, 1,540 Hertz, uh, that they determined that I was doing, which later on, I, you know, in my obsession to try to figure out what this is, I thought I had turned over everything I could find, uh, to figure things out. And I was talking to a guy in MUFON, uh, not too long ago. And he said, well, can you achieve a radio wave? And I said, whoa, what? You know, radio wave. What do you mean? He goes, it's, I think he said 1,548 hertz, which I was just shy of that in Nashville. And, uh, you know, the implications of that just blew my mind. Uh, so my investor, my investigator and I, we've got to get together very soon with uh, some different equipment and, and try some more experimentation. So, I mean, if you were, if you're in this studio and you're producing this sound, I mean, without equipment, is it, if I was standing next to you, would I hear it? Uh, yeah, you'd have to kind of put your ear to my head or a stethoscope works uh, really well or uh, just an amplifier with a, uh, a shirt mic. Um, usually when I show people, I, I have them put it on my head so it doesn't look like I'm, I'm trying to pull off any kind of trick or anything. That's usually what people do. They think, well, you're just wiggling the mic or something like that. And uh, that's not the case because before I had great control, now I can do five-dimensional frequencies, you know, the background all the way to the foreground with complete control. 
uh, better control than my voice. So when people say, well, you're just kind of wiggling the mic, I said, well, hold it, <laughs> you know, put it up to my head and have fun. Um, you know, I understand skeptical, skeptical thought. You know, I, I lived my whole life that way. So this is how you suppose the uh, the greys, I'm guessing, uh, are communicating with with people telepathic telepathically. So now you're able to do it back. But are you? I mean, the 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 sounds that you're creating. What is that like? The carrier wave. I mean, are you able to encode a message in that? Can you communicate telepathically? Well, I don't. I don't understand. There, there were two messages. And every time I would mess up, it would uh, interrupt me and I'd, I'd repeat it again. So those are the ones that we did in Nashville. Um, they're still being studied. They might be studied for God knows how long. I don't know. Um, but they've only said in English uh, one thing to me, and that was it. And I was leaning up against my apartment. I was alone. It was after dark. And it showed up at the end of the street and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm going, what are you, what is going on? You know, I had so many questions. My fear was starting to go away <clears throat> and I was just overwhelmingly curious. You know, this thing just impacted my life, destroyed everything. Uh, you know, I want to know what is going on, you know, and all of a sudden just right inside my mind, it was to look is not to see It is merely to observe with what little we have to offer. And I had no idea what that meant. And it really scared me to, you know, feel that type of communication because it was emotional as well. It was psychic as well. It was almost, you know, uh, uh, the interconnectivity is unexplainable. But that's the only only thing I've ever gotten English at all. It was uh, <laughs> sorry about the shaky voice, but, you know, I kind of go back to it in my mind when when I'm talking about it. Right. I can't imagine. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I've overcome a lot in a long time. But if it weren't for my investigator, I, w I would have put that 380 in my mouth and, and um, you know, ended it right there a long time ago. But you were been I, with me. You were that close. I mean, it was in your lap. You were thinking about what you were sitting in your car, thinking about ending it right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Craving it. I mean, wanting it more than anything in the world because I could not I couldn't handle it. I, I just, there was no way. And, uh, instead of most investigators, they come, they get your, your evidence, they take off and they go study it. And, uh, maybe someday they'll call you back and say, congratulations, that, that was real. But, uh, there, he, he really understands, uh, because he's been through it himself. Uh, so there were many nights where I was just breaking down and not able to handle what was going on. And, and you know, I have to say the worst part is being a father to children and not being able to protect them from something that you don't even understand. And uh, I think that just destroyed me the most. You know, it's, it's, it's been a long, long journey in a very short period of time, but uh, I, I still keep plugging along, you know. And if this is uh, ongoing, I, this is ongoing, right? And this is still happening. And, and how about with your children? How are they? I know, I know they're in college, but how are they doing? They're, they're, they're okay. They, they really are. I mean, uh, you know, uh, my oldest daughter, she graduated, uh, high school at a very young age. Uh, she's 23 right now and she's going, you know, for a master's in biology. So, um, <clears throat> my, my son, he's, uh, he's doing great. Um, 
he's looking into uh, engineering and stuff like that. Uh, highly intelligent children, you know, they, they've grown with it. But I believe because they didn't have so much social conditioning uh, thrown at them, and this happened to them at a younger age, they were more uh, able to accept it than I was. Um, and they were so calm about things where I, I just couldn't handle it, you know. And I, I really think that comes with having a, uh, a forced thought process that gets put on us. You know, uh, children, if a child sees a unicorn, they'll go, yay. But if you and I saw a unicorn, it's like, geez, get a picture. Nobody's going to believe this. Uh, so it's it's just a different mindset. And how did you, you mentioned your investigator. Do you want to, do you want to give us his name and say hello? Or uh, is that kind of a, I don't want to, I don't want to betray any confidences here. No, 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 no confidence. His name is Barry Gaunt. Uh, uh, He's uh, Kentucky's uh, MUFON state director. Uh, He's been studying this for, uh, like I said, over 40 years, Uh, 25 with the star team. Uh, Wonderful, wonderful soul. I mean, I, I owe my life to the man. And, uh, I did tell them him that once I said, you know, how could I ever repay you for what you've done for me? You know, my children, you've helped us, uh, out of the kindness of your heart, you know? And he said, one day when you get back on your feet and off your knees, he said, help people like yourself. He said, now you understand what it's like for them, you know, so be there for them. And, uh, I have ever since. And how did, how did he help you get up off your feet? How did he get you from the, 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 the victim stage to acceptance, if, if that's a word that you use? Well, he was, he was just literally there anytime I needed him. You know, there's a, you know, I, I use the analogy, um, say if you have to have your leg removed, you wake up after surgery, there's a nub there. You think, how am I ever going to live again? You know, and you can become an alcoholic. You can be a poor little me person for as long as you want to, you know, get scapegoats to uh, tell you that drinking's okay. And what you've been through is horrible and all that stuff. Or you can be choosing to, Imagine in your mind, two years from now, I'm going to be a marathon runner with uh, with the prostheses. Both of these two things are really possible. But the fact that he was there, just simply there, that's all, uh, really helped me out quite a bit. And I've never been a fan of being a victim to anything. Um, So, you know, I went after this. I, I had to. I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, ufologists that have been doing this for 40 years, but because there's so many falsehoods and everything thrown in their face all the time, it takes them 40 years to get where I'm at now, you know, to understand uh, so many different things. So um, I had more drive than most people to find out what this is all about. You know, it's not just a hobby for me. It's uh, I've got scars all over my body uh, and there's no explanation for any of it. Your story is truly one of the most remarkable experiencer stories I've ever encountered. And I want to thank you for spending a little bit of time, as I say, an invitation to come back and we'll do two hours and really drill down deep. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Stay tuned. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is next with Tales of a Haunted Doll, another alien abduction story and a cursed treasure hunter from Oak Island. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrin. Live. From Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. 
Rosemary Ellen Guiley is here with our monthly Paranormal News Roundup. And then, part one of her Paranormal Road Trip. She's compiling a list of the best paranormal destinations across the United States from Salem, Massachusetts to Gettysburg and the Lemp Mansion in St. Louis. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a best-selling author, researcher, and investigator in the paranormal, metaphysical, and related fields, including hauntings, psychic skills, and protection, afterlife studies and spirit communication, cryptids, alien contact, and the interdimensional aspects of our extraordinary experiences. She has more than 65 books published on a wide range of topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias and reference works. Some of her recent books include UFOs and the E.T. Presence, Mysteries of the Afterlife, Haunted Hills and Hollows, Contact with the Dead, and Slips in Time and Space. Hey, Rosemary. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Well, Richard, it's always a pleasure to be on. I had a great trip to England this spring where I did some research on some uh, paranormal hotspots and I got to hike to some sacred places. It was a splendid trip. And uh, I'm very busy writing and editing right now. I've been following your your uh, your exploits on Facebook and all I can say is I wish I had your frequent flyer points. <laughs> well, they do pile up and I do get a lot of free trips. I'll bet. I'll bet. All right, so let's dive right in. And, uh, you know, here's a story. When I first saw the headline, I thought, this is right up Rosemary's alley because you've written about this, numerous books. We hear a lot about uh, about these haunted dolls. And here we have this 116-year-old doll uh, in uh, in England that appears to have blinked. What do you, What can you tell me about this? You know, Richard, I wish I could believe it because the the photograph really does look compelling. I don't think it's a hoax um, at all. I think uh, that what we're looking at is a natural camera light effect. Um, this doll, which goes back to 1903, and by the way, I have some problems with the backstory on the doll that that I'll get into. But um, a couple of paranormal investigators uh, took uh, are in possession of this doll, and they they took it to a haunted location and took a selfie with the doll. Now the doll has black holes for eyes, uh, and they were astonished that one of the selfies that they took, the doll appeared to have blinked. Uh, that is, the it, it appeared to have closed eyes with eyelashes on the bottom and even mascara on the lids. And, uh, of course, this uh, uh, had uh, quite a play on the Internet. However, uh, if you look carefully at the doll, you can see that flash was used. And uh, there's a shine on the doll's face, for example. And um, what they're saying are eyelashes at the bottom of the eyes. I think that's just uh, part of the black hole uh, of the two eye sockets and that uh, for whatever reason, and they've not been able to duplicate this photo and they probably never would because the camera would have to flash at exactly the right angle, that uh, the camera flashed and um, didn't capture the entire black eye sockets but grayed out some of the upper portion of them. So it looks like the doll has closed eyes. Ah, well, you know, I think it's so important to have you on to debunk some of these cases because it makes the ones that, you know, there's always that 1% or 5% or whatever it is uh, that cannot be explained away by some prosaic 
uh, explanation. Uh, here's one that can. Uh, but, but as I said, you have written about haunted dolls before. You filled entire volumes of with haunted objects. Uh, and, and to this day, uh, you know, the haunted doll it continues to, uh, to, to, to freak me out. Uh, do you have a collection of, of haunted dolls? I don't. And, um, John, my, my colleague, John Zappas has dozens and dozens of them. And, and, um, I, I've never been a doll collector, but there are a lot of dolls that do wind up being problematic in terms of spirit attachments and hauntings. And uh, I would not want to own a collection of them, uh, for that very reason. Now, this particular doll, uh, and there are a lot of dolls that have genuine issues with them. This particular doll, the investigators named Janet because um, it didn't have a name before that, but they used a ghost box around uh, the doll and asked what the name was, and they got the name Janet. Now, the history goes back to 1903, but there's no explanation for how and why this doll became so haunted. But the story is that the family that owned the doll, uh, everybody experienced problems around it. They got sick, dizzy, headaches, they didn't feel right around it. Uh, and strangely, and this is what puzzles me, the family kept the doll for generations. Now, you would think that if you were in possession of an object that you associated with uh, ill health effects, you wouldn't keep it. You would get rid of it. So that's a problem in the story right there. And, and sometimes these haunted doll stories sort of get started with a little bit of folklore and they kind of grow like Topsy. Uh, and then you have people kind of chiming in through auto-suggestion, um, and uh, supposedly these uh, current owners of the dolls, somebody uh, owned it and begged them to take it uh, from her. I, I don't know why people just didn't dispose of this thing. But at any rate, uh, they own this doll now, and uh, it could very well be that people feel ill effects around the doll, even though we don't know why. There's There's no... There's no tragedy, there's no supernatural activity, there's nothing to tell us anything as to why that should be the case. Uh, I suspect that a lot of uh, the effects that people feel are auto-suggestion. For example, if you're a paranormal investigator and you're exposed to a famous haunted doll that's supposed to make people sick, well, you're probably going to be sick too, or think you are. Uh, so the whole story has a lot of holes in it for me. Sure. And why is it? And and I may be mistaken here, but I'm I'm guessing that the dolls are one of the most popular haunted items. I mean, if there's an object that's going to be haunted, uh, an, particularly an antique doll, why is that? Do you suppose? Uh, well, one of the things that John Zaffis and I came to the conclusion on in Haunted by the Things You Love, where we talk a lot about haunted dolls, is that. Um, people develop emotional attachments to dolls, especially children, but even adults do. And because they are made in a human likeness, a lot of um, projection uh, can um, be placed upon them and uh, emotional attachment. And so then if there's a tragedy in the family, uh, especially someone who's been close to a doll, um, there can be residual energy that becomes attached to the doll. And in some cases, spirits do attach to dolls, too. They, they may even be drawn by the emotional bond that somebody might feel toward a doll. So um, this makes dolls kind of an ideal object for a haunting because they're replicas of human beings. If you had to pick one 
one uh, case of a haunted doll that you found to be the most remarkable or frightening? What would that be? Does one jump immediately to mind? Well, one of the the uh, ones that um, I became involved in, a case I became involved in some years ago, is Harold the Haunted Doll. Um, this has uh, a legacy on the Internet, uh, some of which may be problematic, but um, it was associated with a lot of poltergeist phenomena, not just ill effects, but uh, if somebody owned the doll, things would start happening uh, in their homes. And uh, I believe it's it's still owned by a gentleman now, um, I think he's down in Florida, uh, Harold the Haunted Doll. One of the most famous, of course, is Annabelle. That's an Ed and Lorraine Warren case uh, that they claimed the doll was demonically possessed, and that became the subject of a couple of movies. Sure, sure. Listen, I want to uh, ask you about this, uh, the Pascagoula abduction a case, which, quite honestly, I'm not that familiar with, but it has been heralded as one of the most famous abduction cases. This took place down in uh, uh, on the banks of the Pascagoula River in Mississippi back in 1973. And uh, there were a couple of witnesses at that time uh, who came forward. And uh, one of them, you know, maintained until his death, I guess about 11 years ago, that it all happened. And now, apparently, uh, four and a half decades later, another witness has come forward. But for those, first of all, not familiar with Pascagoula, the abduction case, just give us a thumbnail sketch and then tell us about this new witness. It's one of the most famous cases on record, abduction cases on record, and it's considered to be one of the most solid because the I, the uh, the witnesses, the victims, uh, stuck to their stories over the years. Uh, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker Jr. were uh, out night fishing, and they saw an object, a strange light in the sky that started descending. It turned into a craft and landed on the ground nearby, and these three scary-looking beings came out. They were about five feet tall. They had no eyes. They had slits for mouths. They were not grays. Um, and uh, Hickson and uh, Parker were paralyzed and floated in the ship and then subjected to terrifying medical examinations. A very, very traumatic case. And it was famous. I mean, it made world UFO news. Uh, and Hickson and Parker were on the lecture circuit for many years talking about their case. Uh, and most ufologists consider it to be one of the most solid on record. Well, Hickson's dead now. Uh, and uh, Parker's getting on in years. Parker, in fact, just came out with a new book, and he's back on the lecture circuit now talking about this. Well, interestingly, I mean, here we have this case in 73. Uh, no other witnesses came forward at that time to say they also saw a strange light in the sky or saw a craft come down. But now, all these years later, three other people have come forward and said, oh, yeah, we saw strange lights in the sky that night, and we think it was the one that um, uh, that affected these guys. Um, I find that a little odd that uh, now it's not unusual for people to be quiet about UFO sightings. They fear ridicule uh, or they're terrified. They're afraid it might happen again to them. So in one sense, it's not entirely implausible that people would not have come forward before. But we have to keep in mind that Parker's just fresh out on the lecture circuit again, and this case is getting a whole new, renewed look. And now we have these other three witnesses who have come forward. Well, maybe they did see something strange in the sky, but we have no real solid evidence to connect it to what happened to Parker and Hickson. 
Now, did the new witnesses, did they claim that they were taken aboard or did they just claim that they were, they saw something? They just claimed that they saw something. They did not have abduction experiences. And, um, uh, one of them was out on a double date, and uh, she said she saw some lights and wasn't sure what she was looking at because it was too far away, but it became closer, uh, and um, the people she were with uh, freaked out when they saw it had a, a saucer shape, um, and uh, there was um, uh, an, another witness that uh, said she noticed a blue light in the sky uh, over about the area where Hickson and Parker said they were fishing. Uh, so this is not very strong circumstantial evidence. Um, sometimes in, in uh, cases of sightings uh, where there are multiple witnesses, there might be multiple lights or craft in the sky. Uh, they, it might not be just one. Um, but why have they waited so long to speak up? Right, right. Aside from the fact that the uh, Parker and Hickson, you know, didn't didn't change their story uh, and maintained it right till the end, and and Parker, as you say, still does. What else makes this story so credible in your mind? Well, mainly it was the credibility of the victims um, and the fact that um, uh, they were, you know, considered to be sound. People, um, this was not a hoax. They had no interest in UFOs. Um, the uh, interestingly, the d- descriptions that they gave of these entities uh, really haven't been duplicated in other sightings. Now, uh, before the Greys came to be kind of like the gold standard of, of ET contact, uh, which I think is kind of a media-induced thing. Uh, when when people drew illustrations of the alien beings that they saw, um, the descriptions were all over the place. Uh, and, in fact, um, a lot of them were just one-offs, and that was the case with the, the Pascagoula as well. But the details of the medical examinations uh, conform to uh, what started coming out later. You know, it was in the 70s and really not until the 80s that we started hearing a lot about abduction experiences. Well, uh, first hour of the program, I spoke with uh, Eric Mitchell and uh, his alien abduction. Are you familiar with the Eric Mitchell case? I'm not. Oh, my, my gosh. Um, uh, we, we had him on in hour one, and it's remarkable. Uh, but you and I, we can talk about it at, at some point. I, won't, I don't want to bog things down now. But uh, of all the abduction cases that I've, I've listened to over the years, and I have not had an experience uh, but uh, his case is absolutely uh, stunning. Um, we'll, we'll talk about it sometime, and uh, I'll have to have you back on to discuss it. Um, I want to ask you about this professor at, at Cornell University in New York, who is an expert in early Christianity, and uh, she believes the uh, she has identified the true identity of the Antichrist. What can you tell me about uh, the, the work of Professor Kim Haynes Eitzen? I'm highly dubious about this. Um, now, she's associating um, the uh, Satan, the Antichrist, with details from uh, the Book of Revelation, and that 666 is supposed to be the number of the beast. And uh, she says that 666 is the number of the Roman uh, Emperor Nero who reigned uh, in the A.D. 50s, and um, 
as you know, the famous story about him is he let the barbarians through the gates, you know, uh, the, the uh, iconic uh, story about him is that he fiddled while Rome burned. That was definitely not well-liked. And that the book of Revelation may have been describing a political scenario rather than something religious. Um, well, I'm, I'm surprised at this argument, because most scholars date the book of Revelation to at least 30 to 40 years later than the Rome of uh, the um, rule of, of Nero. Uh, they uh, feel that it was authored sometime during the rule of Domitian. And if that's the case, then why would they... Uh, the book of Revelation is about prophecies to come. Uh, and if if it deals really with Nero and it was written thirty to forty years after the reign of Nero, why would they be right? Why would the author or authors um it's believed that John of Patmos was the author of this, uh, why would that be writing about past history? Uh that and the fact that um the number six 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 is not consistent with, with the sign of the beast. The Bible also mentions the number six one six. So uh I don't think it's a solid argument. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you managed to poke some pretty big holes. I don't know if this is her thesis, but, uh, you know, good luck to her trying to defend it. Uh, I mean, the, the number 666, uh, I mean, that could apply to so many people. I've heard so many different theories, even uh, some have suggested that Barack Obama, somehow you can break that name down to 666. Uh, I mean, do you have any thoughts on on who, first of all, do you believe in the in, in an Antichrist and any thoughts on who it might be? Uh, well, I, my opinion of the, of the book of Revelation, um, and, you know, I, I have to qualify that by saying I'm not a book of Revelation scholar. I haven't done a lot of in-depth study on it, but, um, of course, I have researched it and, and uh, read it in conjunction with some of the books I've written. Uh, I do believe that it is a religious vision and that it deals with uh, end times to come and uh, coming to terms with um, good and evil and the ability of good to trounce evil. I don't think it has anything to do with earthly politics. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm kind of surprised at this attempt to relate it to earthly politics. Is I mean, is there necessarily just one? Uh, I mean, be, people have described Adolf Hitler as an antichrist, Saddam Hussein as an antichrist, uh, I mean, is it possible that there's more than one? I think we could certainly make the case for that, that the Antichrist is evil personified, and it may not be just one individual. Uh, and the book of Revelation describes uh, the beast as uh, a dragon-like uh, creature with seven heads uh, and ten horns. And... Uh, of course, the serpent has, in Christian uh, imagery, has been associated with the devil and Satan uh, for a long time. Um, but the Antichrist could definitely be any person who embodies evil and wreaks evil havoc upon the earth. Uh, so um, whether or not the Revel book of Revelation was pointing to one Antichrist that was going to be like the mother of all evil individuals, um, nobody really knows. But you do believe in, in uh, demons, um, obviously, because you've written about it. Uh, but not necessarily the, when we're talking about demons, uh, are we, uh, are you talking about the same demons that are described in the Bible, or do you think that there's, there, there's something else entirely? 
Uh, well, there certainly is a demonic realm, and, and the demonic realm existed long before Christianity did. Uh, the belief that there were malevolent and hostile spirits uh, afoot that were capable of wreaking havoc on, on the planet and with people. Some of them were just mischievous. Some of them were very hostile and aggressive. Uh, Christianity took that to a different level by associating the demonic realm um, with uh, an army of evil beings organized under uh, Satan, the chief adversary. Uh, and uh, Satan, of course, in, in Hebrew lore was uh, a job description, not necessarily the arch fiend of, of uh, all evil. Uh, and uh, that uh, demons now are all, uh, in the Christian view, are all organized under Satan, and their purpose is to uh, subvert souls and get people condemned to hell. Whereas in the ancient view, um, and in other views still in play on the planet today, uh, the demonic realm is, it's a problem realm. It's, you know, it's like the neighborhood bad guys. Uh, and you got to be careful. You got to watch out. You don't want to run afoul of them. Uh, and there are various remedies uh, that can be taken when you do. Uh, so, uh, very different viewpoints. All right, Rosemary, we're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, we'll continue on with our paranormal news roundup, and we'll head down to Alabama to talk about the uh, the legend of the White Fang. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Happy birthday to you. Hey, Bye. where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is here for her regular monthly visit. Her website, Visionary Living. Dot com. Uh, last night on Coast to Coast, I had uh, Lyle Blackburn on, and we were talking about Momo, uh, the Missouri monster. And uh, I was vaguely familiar with Momo, but I'm not familiar at all with uh, with Alabama's uh, legend of the White Fang. Fang as in T-H-A-N-G. What can you tell me about uh, this creature? A little Alabama accent twist there. Well, actually, there are a lot of white things around. And uh, this particular one in Alabama, there may be different versions of white things, but this particular one in Alabama is um, described as uh, what might be an albino Bigfoot. And there there have been other cases, uh, sightings of um, albino Bigfoot uh, creatures, and, of course, the abominable snowman of Eurasia uh, would be uh, all uh, shaggy white hair. Um, but um, this particular creature has, has especially been spotted in northern Alabama. Uh, it's um, 
kind of uh, skinnier than a, than a lot of big uh, other Bigfoot uh, creatures seen around, um, which stands to reason there may be more than, you know, Bigfoot exists, and I believe Bigfoot does. Uh, there may be m- multiple types of, of Bigfoot. Uh, and um, the skeptics have said, oh, it's just an albino bear. I don't know what an albino bear would be doing in Alabama, but um, I guess uh, the skeptics come up with whatever they can. Uh, now, I first heard of white things when I was researching creatures in West Virginia, and this is a variation of the same thing. Um, the white things there, and, uh, and I also found stories about them in Kentucky and Tennessee and the surrounding areas, uh, this creature was similar, except it went on all fours, uh, but it had shaggy white hair. It has shaggy white hair and huge fangs, and it's described as a cross between a bear and a lion and about as big as a cow. And uh, it attacks people who are out in the woods. Uh, as far as we know, the Alabama white thing hasn't really attacked people. But uh, these other white things uh, will come upon hikers and hunters and campers and rush at them. Uh, roaring away like it's going to tear them to pieces with its huge fangs, and it'll go right through them. They're not harmed at all. Uh, and these creatures have been seen and documented since uh, the early 20th century in the backwoods. So there may be variations of, of the white thing out there, and in Alabama we find it as the white thing, which looks more like a Bigfoot. Hmm. So the, the white thing in Alabama, um, I mean... If it's if it's an albino Sasquatch or an albino Bigfoot, uh, I mean the, I mean I'm not sure what percentage of the population are al- are albinos. It's very small. That would tend to suggest. I mean, if you had this mutation, that there'd have to be a a, f- a fairly large population of Bigfoots in order for an albino to come along. Don't you think? Uh, well, you could certainly make that argument, and this is one of the conundrums you, we run into in Bigfoot research is how many of them are out there, uh, because uh, not many of them are seen at any given time, uh, and this leads to a lot of arguments as to whether or not they're flesh and blood creatures or something that slips in and out of uh, some sort of parallel uh, dimension. But um, I, I don't know, scientifically, there must be some statistics out there that would predict uh, in any given animal population what an albino, uh, what percentage would be an albino mutation. I would think it would be very small. And the fact that it's white, uh, I mean, that, that, that should be standing out like a sore thumb. We have albino moose up here in Canada. And uh, I mean, you know, the, the, lots of pictures taken of it because you're not going to miss that. But an albino Sasquatch in Alabama, and I, they don't get snow in the winter, I, I don't imagine. I mean, it's not going to be very easy for this creature to hide. Are there photographs of it? Do we know? I have never seen an alleged photograph. Uh, there have been eyewitness reports. Uh, e- even the, the, the brown and the reddish brown uh, Bigfoot, which are far more common, um, photographs of them are very sketchy at the best. Yes, uh, I remember the, the the late great comedian Bill Hicks, who once theorized that uh, maybe Bigfoot was born blurry. <laughs> I want to talk to you about Oak Island, uh, off the coast of uh, Nova Scotia, up here in Canada. Of course, uh, one of our our most famous legends, and uh, interesting story here about the the tragic life of a uh, an Oak Island treasure hunter by the name of Jim Kaiser. Tell me about Jim. 
Well, his story is tied into the overall arching story of the Curse of Oak Island, which is the subject of a very popular uh, cable show now, and and uh, I have enjoyed it immensely. Um, and uh, just a, a bit of background: supposedly, there's a huge amount of money buried somewhere on this island off Nova Scotia, and the exact location has been referred to as the Money Pit. And for a, you know a couple of centuries now treasure hunters have scoured and dug on the island searching for the money pit. And uh, some of them have met a very sad demise, and that's exactly what happened to uh, Jim Kaiser. Now, supposedly there's a curse on this money, and uh, six uh, treasure hunters have died trying to find the treasure, uh, and uh, the curse says seven must die before it can be found. Uh, the whole island is supposed to be haunted. People experience m- weird orbs, moving orbs, uh, phantoms, apparitions. Uh, people who've tried to treasure hunt there have mysterious equipment breakdowns. Uh, bad things happen to them. And that gets us back to the story of, of uh, Jim Kaiser. Uh, he was a um, very good friend of the Restall family, who uh, father and son, uh, and they employed a crew, and they were busy digging away, uh, trying to get at the money pit, and uh, tragedy befell them. Uh, Robert Restall apparently breathed some uh, poisonous gas in one of the shafts and fell into the shaft, and his son tried to rescue him. The same thing happened to him and two other workers after that, so four men died. And uh, Jim Kaiser was, uh, he was not present when this happened. He was part of the digging crew, but he was not present. Uh, He was extremely upset, and he was the one who went and recovered the bodies. He put on a gas mask, um, went down and recovered all the bodies, and he was never the same after that. He was mentally off. Uh, as you can imagine, the trauma of that. Right. Uh, he started drinking heavily, had run-ins with the law. Uh, and uh, one night he went and stayed in the cabin that the Restalls had used, and he was awakened in the middle of the night by this huge, hairy, almost sounds like a Bigfoot kind of beast that grabbed a hold of him. It had red eyes, and he said it was covered with a black hair that looked very tightly coiled, which is different from other Bigfoot descriptions, because most Bigfoot descriptions are loose, shaggy hair. Um, But this beast spoke to him, we don't know whether it was verbally or mentally, and said uh, that he should never come back. And he was so shaken by this experience, he had bruises on his arms after that. This was not a dream. He was so shaken after that, that's that's exactly um, what he did. He did not go back. Uh, and nobody believed him. You know, he tried to tell a story, and nobody would believe him, and that frustrated him. Well, he he eventually then uh, took another job um, as the, the site passed on to other owners who were digging, and... He be, uh, and um, he was never right. He was still never right after that, and he he wound up committing suicide by shooting himself. And so he beca- he became the sixth victim of uh, the Curse of Oak Island. Remarkable, remarkable. I I wasn't familiar with that aspect of the story. Now I I I met um, one of the daughters of the Restall family. Um, she had recently been married when her, her parents, who actually I believe met, they were circus performers or motorcycle daredevils who met in Europe. And if I'm remembering the story correctly, and, uh, and then they decided, uh, to give up everything and move out to Oak Island and, uh, were kind of living in trailers out there. 
and uh, she had uh, some some home movies she showed me of her her father and brother and um what life was like out there on the island uh but she never mentioned the uh, the the Jim Kaiser story absolutely remarkable uh listen speaking of uh, oak island have you been I've never been there, and I would love to visit it, uh, mainly because of, of the lore. Here's my feeling about the treasure hunting there. And, um, you know, this show has been quite popular for a number of seasons now. Um, but if there's such a horrible curse on this money, uh, no good can come of it by finding it. And I think it should be well enough left alone. I agree. And the other thing is, so many people have excavated and dug other tunnels and things. You know, I think because it's sand down there, I think, I don't think they'll ever be able to retrieve it anyway. I think it's probably all collapsed in on itself because there's been too much digging and drilling and, and so forth. Uh, but, um, you've never been, maybe it's, it's something you should put on your, uh, your, your list. And when we come back, why don't we, we, uh, sort of compile a paranormal road trip? Uh, top destinations. If someone wants to jump in their car this summer and hit all the, uh, the paranormal hotspots across North America, uh, would you be good for that? I would. Um, uh, there's so many of them. It was really tough to pick, um, pick a few, but I did. All right. We'll do that when we come back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, visionaryliving.com, the website. Back in a moment. Strap yourself in. You're about to leave everything you thought you knew behind. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. All right, we are about to embark on a paranormal road trip across the United States. So, uh, if you were to jump in the car, Rosemary, where would the first stop, a, a paranormal highlight in the United States? Well, we can start east and go west, and I, I tried to pick a, pick a few spots scattered around, and um, very first one, I picked the entire town of Salem, Massachusetts, and um, this is an absolute must for anyone who uh, wants to be in one of the most haunted locations in the country. I've spent quite a bit of time in Salem. Most of the hauntings there are tied to the witch hysteria of 1692 where 200 people were accused of witchcraft, uh, many died in jail, 19 people were executed, 18 by hanging, and one being crushed to death. And it's, it's a tragedy that just has nightmarish uh, aspects to it, and it has affected the entire town. Now, the, the really cool thing about Salem is that the most haunted parts of it are in the central part of town that you can cover on foot. So if you drive there and park centrally or you stay in one of the central lodging places, you can hit all kinds of haunted places uh, just over a weekend. Uh, You spend Halloween there often, don't you? I do. I go up uh, every year and I do a black mirror uh, for co- event for contacting the dead and I stay for the witches' balls and sometimes I stay for Halloween. It depends on when the other activities are uh, are scheduled as well. But uh, Salem is like, um, you know, Halloween in Salem is like um, Mardi Gras. It's <laughs> just mobbed with people in costume. But um, just just a quick sketch of the history here. Salem was founded by Puritans who landed at Plymouth and got upset with the fact 
that things were not strict enough in Plymouth, if you can believe it. <laughs> the Plymouth Brethren fled England because of the oppression they were under, and when they came to America, they set up a regime that was even more oppressive than the one they left, and then a, a, a fraction of them split off because they wanted more oppression. So they sail around until they, they find this location, which becomes Salem, even though the Indians told them not to settle there. They said the land was cursed. Uh, we don't know why it was cursed, and Native Americans just felt it was bad energy, but now the Puritans settle there anyway, and it's never a happy place. They had laws on the books against wearing colored clothing, against celebrating Christmas. You had to be in church every Sunday. You couldn't display affection in public. It was extremely repressive, a lot of jealousies, a lot of infighting, and it all erupted in 1692 when... Um, accusations of witchcraft started flying around. Um, now, there was Salem Town and Salem Village. Salem Town eventually became what's known as Danvers today. And there was a lot of rivalry between these two places. Well, um, it all started with children of Reverend Samuel Parrish. Uh, his daughter and her cousin and some friends were being taught and entertained with occult lore by his uh, Barbados slaves, uh, Tituba and John. It was mostly Tituba. And uh, she was teaching them how to divine, and um, every girl wants to know what her husband is. Uh, it all gets out of hand. The girls start uh, getting hysterical. They start having fits. They... They claim that uh, the spirits of witches are after them. Now, mind you, the the temper of the times was there were preachers like Cotton Mather roaming the countryside preaching against witches and the devil, and that these were a, a real danger to every community. So it all gets very out of hand, uh, and the girls start accusing people uh of uh, being witches who are persecuting them. And these people are actually arrested. The stories are believed. Uh, so accusations are made against dozens of people uh, over the course of time, 200 in all. Uh, trials are held where the testimony called spectral evidence of the girls is believed. Uh, their stories are believed against the protestations of the innocent. And uh, people are condemned to death. Uh, 18 people are hanged, a man is crushed to death, families are ruined, fortunes are lost, and it has left a heavy, heavy haunting residue in Salem and Danvers today. So if you walk around the central part, the old part of Salem, uh, almost every building has something going on in it, haunting activity-wise. Now, underneath Essex Street, the main street in town, is a honeycomb of tunnels. And these tunnels were actually constructed so that goods could be moved in and out of the storefronts very easily. And the tunnels are all haunted. Uh, stores are haunted. Uh, the museums are haunted. Uh, the old burial ground is haunted. Uh, everywhere you go, you are confronted with the residual ghosts uh, of Salem. I'll name a couple of my favorites. One is the Turner Seafood um, Restaurant, very popular place, built on the grounds of the old tavern owned by Bridget Bishop, and she was uh, one of the first to be executed. Bridget was a social misfit. She dressed in colors. This was against the rules. She ran a tavern. It was said that she allowed people to gamble and play cards and drink after hours. So people wanted to get rid of her. Her ghost haunts that restaurant. Uh, the witchcraft, uh, the, the witch house 
uh, owned by one of the old judges is haunted as well. The trials were not held there, but activity seems to have moved into the house because he was one of the main judges who condemned people to death. So well worth a visit, just a short drive from Salem. Ah, all right. We'll come back and continue with our paranormal road trip with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, researcher, best-selling author. And we're conducting a uh, kind of a virtual road trip, paranormal road trip across America. We're going east to west. We started with Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, where's the next stop, Rosemary? Well, moving westward, we'd have to hit Gettysburg, which is probably the number one haunted location in America. It was uh, the turning point of the Civil War, where the tide turned in favor of the North. Uh, it was fought over um, uh, July um, 1st through the 3rd in 1863. 50,000 casualties, wounded and killed. Uh, the entire town of Gettysburg was affected. It was a huge battlefield that's uh, now a historic site. And the battlefield is loaded with phenomena. I spent a lot of time at Gettysburg. Uh, it's residual. Uh, people hear gunfire. They smell um, smoke, gun smoke. They hear horses. Uh, they hear voices. They hear screams and fighting, cannons going off. Uh, and especially at some of the places where the most intense battles uh, occurred. So a lot of paranormal investigation goes on at Gettysburg, and sometimes it can be done um, on into the evening. The park technically closes at dusk. In the summertime, uh, you've got a few extra hours there in the evening to, to do investigations. People have captured interesting photos. They've gotten uh, really amazing EVPs there. The town itself, uh, also was afflicted because sharpshooters moved into the town. A lot of civilians didn't flee. They just holed up in their homes. And uh, many of the buildings in town have bullet holes in them or even unexploded mortars. Um, just about every farmhouse in the area was turned into a military headquarter or makeshift hospital. They're all haunted. Uh, they were turned into surgeries where uh, soldiers um, had amputations, uh, where lives were lost, um, blood stains that are still on the floors. Uh, the the um, lodging establishments in town are haunted. One of the most famous is the Farnsworth House, which has unexploded mortar in its walls. Uh, and a lot of the rooms have apparitions and uh, what we call residual phenomena, which would be poltergeist effects and strange movements of objects. Um, there are also are uh, apparitions of people in period clothing, some of them civilians. I even captured a photograph myself some years ago at, at one of the uh, farmhouses that's now a bed and breakfast. Uh, and... It's unknown whether these people were there during uh, the actual fighting or whether they were just of that era. But Gettysburg um, became a town of tragedy. And um, like other places afflicted by tragedy, people, uh, including Salem, people lost their, uh, their fortunes, their lives, uh, their livelihoods. Uh, they became destitute. And uh, those effects linger today. So Gettysburg is well worth a stop. All right. So moving uh, further west, we've gone from Massachusetts down to uh, Pennsylvania. Where's our next stop on our paranormal road trip? 
it's St. Louis, and I picked the Lemp Mansion because not a lot of people know about the Lemp Mansion, but it's considered to be one of the most haunted houses in America. And this belonged to the family of a German brewing magnate. Uh, German immigrants uh, came over in the 1800s and settled there. Uh, the patriarch set up a, a small brewery for German lager. It became very successful. And um, when he died, his son, William Lemp, inherited it. And he built it up into uh, the largest brewery in the world. No one's heard of Lemp today, of course, because it no longer exists. But back in the day, it was the largest brewery in the world. Now, when William Lemp married, and he married a wealthy woman, his father-in-law gave him this four-story mansion as a wedding present. Wouldn't we all love to have a mm-hmm. father-in-law like that? <laughs> uh, and the Lemps lived very well and lavishly, and they had seven children. Now, the oldest children, uh, the oldest son was earmarked to take over the family business, but at age 28, he suffered a fatal heart attack, and William Lemp never, ever recovered from that. In fact, one day he went downstairs to his marble office and shot himself through the heart and committed suicide. So the, the family business then passed to the next son, uh, who was married to a spendthrift. Her name was Lillian. She was called the Lavender Lady, and her ghost haunts the place today. Um, and uh, she liked lilac-colored clothing. And they wasted a lot of money. Uh, now, for some reason, William Lemp Jr. also became quite despondent and did exactly what his father did. He went downstairs to the same office, shot himself through the heart, and oh, committed suicide. Dear. Oh, my. One of the sisters committed suicide, not on the property, but she, too, died by her own hand. Now, the family fortunes were then thoroughly wrecked when Prohibition came along in 1919. And... Uh, the breweries and distilleries were forced to adapt to other kinds of businesses. A lot of the breweries went into what was called near beer, uh, and they started making stuff like ice cream and other things. But Lemp was never able to adapt, <clears throat> and so um, <clears throat> the family fortunes continued to spin uh, into a decline. And uh, William Jr. wound up selling uh, the business in 1922 for uh, a fraction of its value and now, there was another, oh, another tragedy on oh site. dear <laughs> another, another sibling, 1949 this guy was a little off in the head uh and his name is charles and uh he went downstairs into the basement one morning with his dog shot the dog to death and then shot himself to death so uh lemp mansion has a, a lot of uh, violent history behind it, and it is very, very haunted. Um, it's a historic place. You can take tours there today. Um, there are uh, groups that arrange ghost hunts. Uh, people who have done ghost hunts overnight have had all kinds of creepy things happen to them. Lillian's ghost uh, wafts around the halls. Uh, some of the heaviest and creepiest phenomena, as you can imagine, are down in the office where the two, um, the two Williams shot themselves to death. Uh, and, uh, the phenomena is still very, very strong today. Have you had experiences at Lemp House? I, uh, I actually have. Yes, I've been to Lemp. And I've done some investigation there. The, uh, it is true that where the suicides took place in the marble office, there's a very heavy, oppressive atmosphere, and uh, you feel watched. 
uh, and um, you just kind of want to get out of the place because it is it is so oppressive. Uh, I've gotten EVPs there, very unusual EVPs. Uh, I I did not see Lillian's ghost while I was there, but um, I have uh, talked to other investigators who have seen her in her lilac clothing, uh, walking around the hallways. Oh my! Makes you wonder what the heck were they putting in that beer? I mean, to to for so such tragedy. Well, I know, and then for so many suicides, it, it's really amazing. Uh, and you know what was going on there uh, with the family. I mean, who knows? We, we we really don't know if some kind of mental illness ran in the family. Has anyone tried to exercise that house? Not to my knowledge, and there will probably be a lot of angry ghost hunters if somebody tried. That's true. That's true. Uh, listen, we're gonna we're gonna have to uh, end the uh, the paranormal road trip there. We'll call this the end of part one, and next month when we have you back on, uh, we'll do part two, and we'll uh, we'll continue to head further west on this paranormal road trip. But for now. Uh, people can uh, start in Massachusetts and Salem, head on down to Pennsylvania and Gettysburg, and then uh, to the uh, the gateway to the West, St. Louis and the Lemp Mansion. Rosemary, thank you so much for this. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, too, Richard. Thank you. And again, the website, visionaryliving.com. That's it for us. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. 
There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. If you're new to the program, welcome, and you've picked the perfect night to join us. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is an extraordinary paranormal researcher and the author of over 70 books, and she joins us in the second hour for a conspiracy show tradition. Once a month, she drops by, and we kick around a few wonderfully strange stories in the news. We call it the Paranormal News Roundup. This hour... In my 20-plus years behind a microphone, I've interviewed and met countless alleged alien abductees and UFO ET experiencers. But Eric Mitchell is, to date, the most credible such person I've met, and he has one of the most compelling stories. Eric has been counseling abductees of alien encounters for the last five years since having his own encounter and facing the harsh reality of this phenomena and its effects on one's life. He's dedicated his time to helping others who have had the misfortune of experiencing this phenomenon firsthand. Along with educating the public and ufologists on this subject, Eric is a highly sought-after speaker and lecturer on the topics of UFOs at conferences and on radio, TV, and documentary films. Eric Mitchell, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. We should point out that you're down in in Arkansas. Now, you grew up in a, a small town. You've described that as the Bible Belt. What just before we we get into your your case, just tell me about life in in small town Arkansas growing up. Well, it's you know everybody knows everybody. Um, you know if, if something significant happens in your life, it travels around pretty fast. Um, very very nice, kind, genuine people. You know if you go to the grocery store and uh, you have a little chit chat with the uh, you know the the lady behind the counter, she genuinely wants to know how your day is. Uh, it's not a, a program response or a re- mechanical reactive behavior. You know, it's uh, genuine people. Uh, so you, what I went through, it made it very difficult to, uh, to kind of stay around uh, per se. And you were, you were a debunker uh, on this subject for years, right? I mean, were you, were you a, a regular church goer and, and I mean, were you raised to, I guess, not believe in, in UFOs, aliens? Well, of course, I think through uh, social conditioning, uh, especially here in America, that we're all raised not to believe in this kind of thing. Uh, I wasn't really actively a debunker. I, I wouldn't go after people uh, for uh, for talking about that kind of thing, but I would shy away from them like, wow, this guy, you know, this guy's nuts. He's talking about UFOs. You know, I would uh, definitely uh, shy away from that kind of thing. Um, I'd like to think that I was very... Simple Southern man, uh, very practical um, and and, and slow, (laughs) to be honest with you. Uh, I didn't really have uh, a whole lot of intelligence. And uh, this this whole situation really changed uh, my way of thinking uh, 100%. But for you, you know, that old expression, seeing is believing. But for you, in the beginning, seeing wasn't believing, correct? That that is correct. That is correct. I couldn't... um, you know, I'm a student of psychology, and when you come across something that's not supposed to be real, naturally you go that direction. And for me, I wanted to believe that I was um, suffering too much stress in my life. Maybe I was having some sort of delusion. Um, you know, it, it, and it got really bad. It got to the point where I was daydreaming that I can go to a, a psychologist, get get on medication. Six months later, all this would be gone. Meanwhile. Um, at the time, I'm having witnesses all over my neighborhood point these objects out. They're really scared. 
I had pictures and videos on my phone, uh, very up close, very good pictures. And at the same time, I'm still telling myself, this isn't real. Everyone just noticed that I lost my mind and they were agreeing with me just to be nice. You know, I, I was trying to paint that. And if I ever was delusional in my entire life, that would have been that time because I could not accept it at all. It, it just wouldn't wouldn't be a part of my reality. So so give us a, a time frame and then we'll sort of we'll we'll go through this kind of chronologically. When did when did the uh the sightings it was an I guess this orange spherical object floating around your your place. When did that start? Uh, it was uh, I believe it was July 28th of uh, 2013. I had uh, woken up and I was standing outside of my apartment. I had no idea how I got there. And I kind of slowly woke up. I didn't wake up and just kind of jolt. You know, I slowly woke up with this confusion, like, what the hell am I doing outside? Um, you know, and, and, you know, I could feel my eyebrows just pushing together and, and, and confusion. And I'm looking at the, the dead end of the road. It's a very, very small street, very short dead end. And here this thing is. And my first thought is, is that an exploded transformer? Um, but the more I became conscious, the more I was uh, just absolutely confused. I, I, I'm looking at this bright light. It's uh, maybe 35, 40 feet in diameter. And it's, it, it looks like a miniature sun. Uh, and it didn't, what bothered me the most is it didn't really illuminate light. It was very bright, but the street, the apartments, the, the, uh, the trees, everything around this thing was not illuminated, but it was extremely bright. So it just, it really bothered my, my, my thinking. And what time of day was, was that again? It was around 4 a.m. I remember going inside and it was about 4.18 when I walked inside and, uh, turned on the television, I thought maybe uh, there was some strange weather phenomena. I was kind of desperate at the time to uh, to try to figure out what the heck was going on. Um, but I, I kept the door open all morning so I can kind of lean over on my couch and, and look out. And, and I, as soon as the doubt would come back into my mind, I would lean over and look and go, what the hell is that thing? You know, what, what could it possibly, you know, it, it didn't bob, it didn't weave. It just kind of marbled like water or, or if you were looking directly at the sun, it had that, uh, uh, that wavy motion to the, uh, exterior. So, um, I figured by 6am or so the sunlight would be out and I'd be able to, uh, laugh at myself and, and go, look, you know, optical illusion and, you know, the world would start spinning my way again. Uh, but, uh, by the time the sun came up, I was getting the kids up and getting coffee and, and poked my head out as soon as the light came out and there was nothing there. So I walked outside. I looked around to uh, kind of give myself an idea of this optical illusion. And I couldn't really uh, explain it away. So, uh, you know, that day I'm normally um, the guy with charisma at work and, and, and getting everybody going. But that day I was just really quiet, kept to myself and uh, really confused about what it was. And uh, you mentioned you were you're getting your kids breakfast. Uh, did you did you um, discuss it with their mother? Uh, did, or did you just say nothing to no one? Well, no, I was a single father at the time. And uh, I, I really didn't want to say anything to uh, the kids or anything like that. Uh, when you see something you can't explain, the, the, the last thing that you do is try to tell someone about it. Uh, at least in my situation, uh, because 
you know, if you see something that's not supposed to be real, you know, how do you even begin having that conversation? Uh, so, and, that, and that's what I find in my work is that people internalize this so much that it literally just destroys them from the inside out. And uh, it, it, it just takes one person to listen to and say, look, you're not crazy. I've witnessed these things too. And, uh, you know, immediately their, their life gets a lot better. But that's what I did. I just internalized it, put it in the uh, confusion folder in my mind and, and, and tried to uh, go on and, and have a normal day. But obviously that wasn't the end of it. Uh, I mean, it kept coming back. And, and at some point, though, there you you had neighbors who saw it, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I think there were uh, 19 witnesses that literally lived on the street, uh, but there was quite a few more because people would talk at the grocery stores, you know, they'd talk at church and, and they'd get curious about what's happening. They'd hear about this kind of thing. So they would drive up at night and, and uh, it, it became quite a bit of a, a fiasco because uh, people were throwing beer cans down, cigarette butts. There'd be uh, 10, 20, 30 people outside of my apartment um, after dark, just to see what, uh, what all the fuss is about. And, uh, so these people witnessed it too, went to other people and, uh, word got around really fast. And because I live in the Bible belt, uh, they were saying that I was calling down the devil, you know, that I was, uh, in league with the devil somehow or something like that. So, uh, things got pretty negative, you know, for me, um, in, in the town that I live in. Why did they, why did they focus the attention on you just because it appeared outside your apartment? You had neighbors. Why you? Well, it, it was obvious to everyone in the neighborhood that, uh, this thing was interested in me. Uh, if I'd walk away from the crowd, it would literally go across the street and, and be in front of me. So, uh, and it, it really wouldn't show up until I came right outside. You know, people would, uh, knock on my glass. They would knock on my door. These are people I've never even met. You know, they just want to see the object and I would come out and the object would show up. So, uh, it, it really frightened a lot of people, uh, including myself. Uh, I was uh, uh, physically affected by this thing um, and, and affected in, in so many ways. I don't think we have enough time on the show to, to really get into all of that. But uh, this object did hover above me. <clears throat> I was unaware of it. Uh, I was standing on my, excuse me, <clears throat> I was standing on my own shoelace at the time. And I kind of stepped back and untied my shoe. I'm sure everybody's done it uh, once in their life. And I felt this vibration on the top of my head. And uh, I didn't know what it was. I hurry up, you know, finish tying my shoe. And all of a sudden it was like someone turned up the volume on this thing. Uh, it felt like a extremely unexplainable uh, vibration and frequency. Uh, kind of like if you're standing in front of a rock speaker during a conference or, or something like that, you know, you're, you're, you're going to feel the vibration come through. Uh, but this is maybe times a million. Uh, I went straight to the ground face first. I felt it mainly in my head. Uh, the only real thought I can push through my mind was, oh, my God, I'm being killed. You know, it was that harsh. I did throw up, uh, but the only reason I knew that is because my throat was open for a long period of time. And uh, as soon as I could push myself off the ground and look up at the object, it flashed twice and, and darted away as, as fast as a bullet. No sound, um, no indication uh, or anything. Uh, it was just uh, jaw-dropping that there's no sonic boom. There's no anything like that, but it just took off. So I kind of laid there um, 
And you were bleeding, right? You were bleeding out of your, your nose and your ears? Yes, my left ear and, and both nostrils and my nose. <clears throat> I actually, um, well, I literally crawled into the uh, apartment, got into the, you know, the bathroom floor, and uh, I was so hot, my skin was like sunburned. I felt like I had third-degree burns on my brain. Uh, literally, it was just on fire. And, you know, we don't have nerve endings on our brain to literally feel something like that. So I'm, I'm still confused about that. But I, I just laid on that cold floor and, uh, um, and and passed out. I did yell to my kids, call 911, but I think they were already uh, sleeping. You know, as I'm hearing this, particularly, you know, the 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 witnesses that saw this orange sphere floating above your, your neighborhood, the the image that came into my my mind was the 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 Fatima appara- apparition of 1917. Uh, um, are you familiar with that case? I don't think so. Uh, these uh, uh, por- Portuguese uh, children, very poor uh, Portuguese children in Fatima, Portugal, uh, village uh, during uh, the First World War saw what they believed was the apparition of uh, the Virgin Mary. And she, uh, she visited with them and revealed all of these, you know, prophecies and so forth. And, and then at some point there were uh, thousands of people, uh, who, who came because it was a recurring, uh, occurring episode. And, uh, they, they saw this light in the sky. It was sort of, you know, dancing in the sky and, and things. And this was, you know, seen by, by thousands of people. Uh, and so I'm, you know, the fact that you had all of these, these witnesses, um, I'm surprised it, 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 it didn't garner the kind of media attention that, I mean, the, the Fatima apparition is particularly among, uh, observant Catholics is, you know, is a huge event. And yet your event, I'm guessing, didn't receive that kind of media attention. Well, it, it it actually did. I got a call from a, a CNN reporter, uh, several different news outlets, um, all kinds of things. You know, it, it did get out. Um, but I, I was in a position where <clears throat> the only way I could actually um, explain it is when I went through my divorce. You know, I had constant anxiety. What's going to happen to the kids? What's going to happen to my home? Is my bank account going to get drawn in? So I was in that state of, of constant fear and worry and confusion. I was definitely not in a position to go sit down in front of CNN and tell them what happened. I mean, today, yeah, I could do that. But but back then, my worldview was absolutely 100% being destroyed. You know, everything that I believed in, everything um, that I was, was changing. And it's, you know, I was suffering from what you would call maybe savant syndrome, where you have a very low IQ and the next thing you know, it's 150 and you don't know what to do with that. You know, so I was, I was going through a lot of struggles with these things and there was no way in the world I was going to be that crazy UFO guy that everybody laughs at, you know, uh, for a split second on television. Um, I, I'd like to think of myself a little more <clears throat> aware than that. You know what I mean? It's just, uh, uh, I just didn't want to be in that situation, especially being a single father, four kids, and you, you don't want DHS banging on your door going, hey, you're nuts. You know, I'm going to take your children away now. So uh, there's so many factors that you can put into that. But, you know, now that they get, the kids are all off to college, you know, I could talk about these things, you know, um, especially not just for myself, because... 
I, I speak to at least one new person every day that has these experiences, maybe not 100% the same, but very, very similar. And it just keeps coming out over and over and over again. And it's just jaw dropping to hear from 125 different countries all over the world with people telling you, yes, I've, I've seen this thing. Oh my God, I'm not crazy. Uh, so it really helps them out. You know, they don't have a voice. Uh, I don't think most of them ever will until this taboo really lifts, you know, from our, our, uh, society and become something a little more understanding about this. You know, the CIA, they're, they're completely involved with studying this kind of thing. <clears throat> Yet us people think, you know, it's all taboo and it's all quote unquote crazy. When did the, when did you notice the birds flying into your, your building and, and, um, killing themselves? Oh, that was, uh, just before the, uh, the first, uh, UFO incident. Um, I actually recently spoken with a man about, uh, I think 20 minutes from here and he's been trying to find me. He tracked me down. He said, you know, that same night, those birds, I, I saw an object <clears throat> floating over the trees and it was the same as I described. And these birds are just falling down dead, um, right there in his driveway. And, uh, he thought he was alone for the longest time, uh, was seeing this object, but, uh, he wasn't, you know, and, and we've been talking quite a bit about it. And, and at some point, because of the, the birds, I guess, you had the Centers for Disease Control. The CDC came to your place knocking on your door. What were they looking for? Uh, well, they, I, the, the first thing I asked them, because they were in full gear, you know, uh, am I in danger? Are my kids in danger? Because, you know, I was laying on the couch. I was trying to get a nap. Single parents never get naps. So this was like a, a great thing for me. And I hear just rocks or, or baseball or something just hitting the side of the, the building. So I'm thinking, you know, kids are playing baseball or something like that outside. But once it got so loud and so frequent, I decided I was going to go out and, and scold some children for being so loud and, and, and damaging to my apartment. And, uh, well, that wasn't the case at all. It was these blackbirds. They were literally falling from the sky and landing into the end of my apartment. The CDC asked me if I had any strange electrical things in the house, you know, uh, and I told them, no, I have a refrigerator, television, you know, just normal stuff, you know, uh, I don't have any strange electrical anything, you know, and I asked them if I was going to get some kind of, um, you know, information about what was going on because, you know, there could be some kind of flu, there could be, you know, disease or something like that. And I literally, I've never heard back from them. Uh, as a matter of fact, I saw it, um, a couple of nights later, it was on national news that uh, all these birds were falling out of the sky and there was no no explanation other than fireworks uh, is is the only thing they can come up with. You mentioned your, your IQ uh, went from mm -hmm. 110 to 150. So you, you you had yourself tested, right? What 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 sort of came into your mind that you realized I'm going to you know, I need to get this tested because I'm not the old me anymore. Well, I was uh, I was really lucky. I was looking for someone in the uh, in the very beginning that knew about this. I, I didn't care if it was paranormal, explainable. I didn't care. I just wanted to talk to someone that knew about this kind of thing and literally just open my mouth and, and, and say these things so I can get them off my chest. You know, they were boiling inside. I needed to erupt. I needed to speak with someone. And I found a man that was with... Um, Move on for the longest time. He's been studying this thing on his own for, for over 40 years, you know. So I got on the phone with him and, uh, 
the first two minutes I'm rolling my eyes going, this guy's crazy. You know, he's talking about UFOs and aliens and, and all this stuff. And, uh, but I, I decided I was going to stay on the phone and listen to everything the man had to say. So I was lucky to have him because in the beginning he, uh, started a case. He, uh, started collecting evidence, witness statements and all that stuff. So, uh, it was just really good to, to, you know, uh, I was so lucky to, uh, to run in him to him at that time. But, but did you, was there a sort of an aha moment for you when you said, I think I'm a lot smarter than I used to be. What's going on here? <laughs> well, he, he noticed the change, you know, um, I noticed the change as well, but he noticed it. He, he said, you know, you're talking faster, you know, what's going on with this. And, and during these investigations, you want to do psychological analysis every three months. Um, if you notice anything at all, you need to follow it, you know, and, and document it. And for me, it was, it was almost instantaneous, but not at the same time. I would notice my thoughts thinking, uh, I would, uh, for a small example, I went to a pep rally to see my son, you know, play his horn, have a good time, root for our team. I've done it for years, you know, and I walk up to the school and this school I've known for years and it's called Cutter Morning Star. People can Google it. It's in Hot Springs, Arkansas. I went Morning Star, you know, um, so everything that I, I had initially looked at throughout my life had, had changed in front of my eyes. So I'm walking around seeing Eric, things. Eric, pardon the interruption. I'm going to take it. We'll, sure. uh, this will be a bit of a cliffhanger. We'll come back and we'll pick up on this story. Eric Mitchell, experiencer, abductee, back with more of The Conspiracy Show in a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Eric Mitchell stays with us. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, Rosemary Ellen Guiley with our Paranormal News Roundup. And uh, she'll also take us on a little paranormal uh, road trip across America and highlight some of the top places. So, Eric, you were talking about this aha moment when you realized that you had received sort of a significant uh, upgrade, shall we say. You went to a pep rally at your son's public school and uh, the the name of the school, Morning Star, something something clicked. Yes, yes. You know, I never thought, uh, never thought about that before, but I went into the pep rally and I'm looking at kids holding flags with goats on them. I'm looking at young ladies uh, with painted faces, short skirts, throwing their legs in the air in front of the crowd. I'm looking at uh, children, you know, uh, chanting, fight, 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 win, 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 you know, a, a practice of, of dislike or hatred toward a town because of a ball game. And, you know, I started thinking about divide and conquer, and I started thinking about the thought process of one town versus another and what we teach our children. And, you know, I started thinking about uh, different counties, different towns, um, you know, accents divide us, religion divides us, you know, and if you look at the United States, it's not the United States, it is the divided states, because uh, look at all those lines and, and, and different names. So I, I just kind of went through all of that in my mind so fast. And I went, wow, what the hell? You know, I'm just a, a simple redneck. And here I am just having all these thoughts and emotions and feelings. And um, that, too, was really, really difficult to handle. I mean, uh, it, it got to the point where I had to keep my mind busy. I had to keep 
reading. Uh, you know, I got into uh, mathematics and botany, and, and um, this was not me. This was not how I normally am, you know. Uh, get up, go to work, take care of the kids, do my routine, because routine is safe for a, a single parent. And here I am divulging like um, the only way I can explain it with addiction is cigarettes because I smoke. And so if I want one really bad, I know that feeling. And I was just craving so much information. And to this day, I literally haven't read one book on the UFO subject. And I think that's kept me safe for a lot of reasons. Um, but um, but, yeah, I, I just couldn't get enough information. And uh, and now I think uh, I'm not definitely full of useless information uh, but uh, I had to learn I just had to keep cramming it was just an impulse to uh, to keep going and it was it was mind-wrecking it was very 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 difficult to um, per se go through that type of transition so so quickly but meanwhile I mean the, these experiences are still happening tell me about the the actual abduction well I, I actually don't have memory of abduction I do have um, Slight bits and pieces, uh, you know, flashes in the mind of of um, seeing different lights uh, with my eyes barely perched open. Um, but what I can tell you is I was in extreme denial. I was talking to my investigator. He said, you're not going to like this, but I believe you have been abducted. And I couldn't accept that. I, I, you know, who, who, what rational mind can say, you know, a, a UFO came over my house, took me and my, my children and did experiments. I mean, that's just, you can't digest that right away. And it's taken me years to digest it as well. But what I couldn't overlook was the marks. Um, I believe the first time is when I woke up and my, you know, here I am on my couch. I have a 380 under my pillow because if anything was going to come through that front door, I'm going to shoot it. You know, I was at that point. I was scared. I was confused. And he's pouring cereal and I look up at him and he's got this mark cut out of his forehead. And it, it was a large piece of skin. You know, it was pretty good sized. So I got up and I looked at it. I rushed him into the bathroom. And I'm putting peroxide on it and, and cold water. And I'm asking him, how did you hit your head? What happened to you? And he said, I don't know, Dad. I just woke up and it's here. And he said, Dad, look at your head. And he looks up in the mirror at me and points. And I looked up at my head and I had a gash in the same spot of my forehead. So I told my son, I said, hold on to the counter. Don't move. You know, and I went into his sister's room, pulled over the blanket. And there it was on her head as well, the same exact spot. Um, now, am I to believe that all three of us slept walked? fell into an object of the same shape and size um, with different weight distributions. All of us had the same depth and everything like that all in one night. Well, that's that right there is an insane thought. Um, there was a, about three days later, I woke up to my daughter screaming. I ran into her room as fast as I could. And, and she had her mouth just wide open, trying to scream. And I didn't, I, you know, I just ran up to her. I'm shaking her. What's wrong? What's wrong? And she pulls the blanket off of her shoulder. And from her shoulder cuff to her elbow were literally hundreds of scoops. And I'm not talking bug bites. You know, um, these things were deep enough to put a, uh, a drop of water at least in each one of them. And I stopped counting on one arm at 174 on one arm. That's how ate up her arm was. Oh, but as I'm, as I'm freaking out, she, she, you know, she's got her mouth open. She's trying to say something to me, but she points at my arm and I look down and I have the same thing. So, you know, I've, I've known their pediatrician for 15 years. We've been golfing. He's a great guy. 
And he, he looks at her and says, good Lord, little girl, what in the world is eating you? And he looks at me and he says, Eric, these lesions are deep enough to be bleeding or at least pussing. He said, the skin is so dehydrated that they're not doing either. You know, he said, I've got to have some kind of explanation. He said, Eric, if I haven't known you as long as I've known you, I'd have to report this. And I said, what do you mean report this? And he said, well, to DHS, you know, for, for harming your children or having your children in harm's way. You know, and I told him, I said, look, it's got to be some kind of bug bite or something. You know, I don't know. And he said, yeah, but that wouldn't explain the dehydration and things of that nature. So uh, it, it was a terrible, terrible um, time to really be in a cognitive dissonance of what's going on, what's causing these things. And there were several uh, different ones. I had woken up one morning jumped in the shower and as soon as the water hit my stomach i felt a, a, a severe burning sensation and i looked down and from nipple to navel a very long long uh what looks like um, a laser incision and i've had a couple of doctors tell me that's exactly what a laser incision looks like uh i have no idea where it came from you know um but it's 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 still there to this day you know just a big long scar so you know, in the beginning, it was impossible to believe, but at the same time, where are these marks coming from? I'm not the type to jump out of bed and, and look at a, a tiny little nick on me and say, oh, that must be, uh, you know, aliens. It's It's got to be something very substantial for me to even uh, go that route, uh, but I had to start looking into it. And did your, did your children have any memory? Do they now have any memory of, of these experiences? Yes, they do. They do more than I do. Um, they, they remember being on the craft. They remember, uh, me just <clears throat> being on a table and, uh, being incoherent. You know, um, they would say dad or something like that. And I just wouldn't respond. Um, at one point, my daughter remembers holding one of their hands and walking down a hallway and going into a room and, uh, uh, trying this machine. And when she tried this machine, it, it seemed to um, put her directly into a meditative state of uh, uh, she, the way she described it. She said she felt like she was everything all at once. And uh, she had a lot of trouble explaining that to me, but they have a lot, <clears throat> a lot more memory of, uh, of abduction than I do. You know, uh, most of my memory is right there in the front yard, you know, uh, with this object. Uh, in the next, we're coming up on a, on a break here, but just in the few minutes before we break, just let's start this conversation about, uh, frequencies, uh, sure. that, that you, that were used, I guess, to communicate with you. And then we'll, we'll discuss how you sort of have this ability or your brain has this ability to create sound. When did this all begin? Sure. That happened when I got knocked down by the object. I usually don't talk about it <clears throat> too much, but I, I, I guess I don't mind. I, uh, when this object knocked me down, I did feel it predominantly in my brain. Um, like I said before, we don't have nerve endings in our brain, but of course we can definitely have a headache <laughs> once in a while. Uh, the next morning when I woke up, I woke up covered in blood, um, covered in, in vomit. I, I was fully clothed. I kicked off my shoes and I got directly into the shower and just laid there fully clothed and, until the water, uh, hot water ran out. I dried up, you know, uh, I got on fresh clothes and I went in to get 
something to drink because I was insanely thirsty. I mean, I, I grabbed the cranberry juice and I was, I didn't care. I was just spilling it down my shirt, just trying to get enough um, liquids into my body. And I started to walk from the kitchen into the, uh, the living room and I felt that slight rumble on the top of my head. So I literally grabbed the counter and braced. I froze. You know, you ever see a goat that gets scared, they just freeze and they fall over. I mean, that's, that's the kind of terror that I was in at the moment. And as soon as I would kind of relax that, that, that frequency and the vibration would just kind of go away. Uh, so about five times into it that morning, I kind of thought to myself, is this me? You know, am I doing this? So I paid attention to that, uh, that feeling. It, it, it felt like the center of my brain, like there's a little muscle in there. Eric, I'm going to jump so in I, here. We're going to, uh, sure. we're going to head into a break and we'll pick up on this on the other side. Eric sure. Mitchell with a remarkable, harrowing, almost horrifying, uh, abduction experience. Back with more of the conspiracy show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. So, Eric, you were talking about the uh, this uh, the sensation in the top of your head, and it was happening over and over and over again. Uh, you want to pick up from where we left off there? Well, sure. I I kind of paid attention to where it was. You know, it, it felt like a muscle. You you can move your finger, you can move your toes, um, and it just I felt something in the center of my brain. So I. It's hard to explain, but I, I accessed it uh, or allowed it. Um, it's it's really difficult to uh, articulate, but as soon as I did that, it went off. And I mean, went off bad. And I jumped up off the couch and I'm pacing back and forth and I'm going, oh my God, I'm insane. You know, I, I probably have schizophrenia or I have, uh, you know, I keep wanting to lean toward that, especially in the beginning when all this was happening. But, you know, maybe I had a brain tumor. Um, so I just totally freaked out. And I wasn't in a good position to uh, experience that in the first place because I'd, I'd gone through so much already. So I got a hold of my investigator and I said, look, you're not going to believe this. Uh, I don't even want to tell you, but this is what's going on. And he said, let me send someone down there immediately and and let's check it out. So he sent one of his investigators out. Nice lady. She came out. Uh, she witnessed the uh, the high strangeness, the lights flickering, the uh, television turning on and off. Uh, she went through four cameras trying to f- film me on tape. Um, I think she got 19 witnesses that day. But she, she, you know, poor thing, you know, she would plug in a camera, aim it, and it would just drain. So she went through four cameras. Uh, the fourth one, she just kept plugging into the wall so she can actually do it, the interviews. Well, she had um, told me, she said, we're going to be on camera and you can show me this uh, vibration and frequency thing that you're talking about. And kind of, she looked really skeptical. You know, looking back, I don't blame her. I would be skeptical too. Uh, but I was I was shy about it, and I immediately got upset with her, thinking, <clears throat> you know, she it doesn't believe me, you know. So I really got to push that out and, and show her. So I sat in a, a chair in front of mine, in front of the camera, and I leaned forward and I I put my forehead to her forehead and I pushed it out um, as hard as I could, and she immediately fell out of the chair. I had to catch her and. Uh, her face swelled up and her eyes swelled shut and everything like that. So she had a lot to report to my investigator about it. You know, you know, she obviously she said this is a real thing. Uh, it's definitely not tinnitus or schizophrenia or anything like that, which we've 
gone through a lot of um, studying about it, you know, trying to figure out right. I mean, what's what, you, what. what you're describing is not physiologically possible. Right. That's what uh, my doctor said. He did his thesis on the human brain in school, and he said there's nothing in the human brain that can create sound. Now, I have a friend of mine. Well, he's now a friend because of, of our dealings, but he worked for uh, MIT for quite a while. And he postulates that I'm somehow able to push the subtle energy, uh, you know, the, the firing between neurons, that electric, it looks like electricity, but it's not. But he postulates that I'm able to somehow access all of it at once and push it uh, to make sound vibration, it, which... It, uh, is it measurable? Oh, well, I can set off uh, EMP meters and stuff like that uh, at will. Um do you, do you remember that that renowned debunker, the amazing Rand, the amazing Randy? He used to be a magician, and then he then he worked for one of these. Well, he's got an organization. He debunks this kind of stuff, and he offered up a prize of a million dollars for anyone who could approve some sort of paranormal, supernatural uh, phenomena. I mean, what you're describing, uh, I think there's a check with your name on it for a million dollars. Well, I mean, if he would like to have coffee sometime, I'd love to show him. You know, this is not something that I can only do on the second Tuesday of every month. You know, this is something that, um, you know, um, is is with me all the time. I mean, I, I just entertain myself. I put in earphones and add to the music. Um, now, it, what something very interesting that <clears throat> I've come across recently is uh, Kit Green from uh, from the CIA. He uh, works in Princeton University. Uh, he deals with DNA a lot. Um, he's been scanning experiencers like myself and he's been doing MRIs and stuff like that. And he got a hold of, I believe, um, who was that? Grant Cameron that's been talking to him. Oh, yes. Canadian. And I know Grant. Yes. Grant, great guy. Uh, great researcher. I mean, if you want to follow the truth, he's always nipping the heels of it. Uh, so I, I talked to Grant recently and uh, Grant told me, he said, yeah, some of these guys are pushing out. Uh, not at will. Okay. These are brain scans. Um of 25 hertz, 45 hertz, 50 hertz. And then he wanted to surprise me. And he said, Eric, some of these monks that they're scanning that uh, meditate all the time, they're actually pulling out 100 hertz from their brain. And I kind of chuckled and I went, oh, no, uh, because last time I was sent to Nashville, uh, now 100 hertz is below human hearing. You're not going to pick that up, but you're going to see it on screen, you know, with these computers. For me, it was 1,540 hertz in Nashville with a cheap uh, shirt mic oh, um, dear to Lord. my forehead. Listen, we're going to stop a, there. I'm sorry. I will take another quick time out. And uh, a few minutes right. remain with Eric Mitchell and this uh, remarkable, remarkable story. Uh, how could you go away? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Happy birthday to you. Hey. Bye. Where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.